When um, a number of years ago, I heard a uh, um, an interview. I probably told this story before in this this scenario, but uh, heard an interview with John Cage, the com composer. Um, And the interviewer mentioned, said, "You know, I hear you're a you're a Zen Buddhist, and and uh, and um, could you talk a little bit about that and about how it relates to your um, work as a composer?" And and John Cage said something like this. He said, "You know, I've done a lot of sitting and 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 uh, tried all sorts of different things, but here's what works for me." I listen to one thing completely, um, which was, you know, a pretty Zen thing to say, but also it's a gateway to something that we're going to talk about today. So, um, so that they say that a monk asked uh, Fayan. Um, the, a monk whose name presumably was um, Hui Chao uh, asked Fayan, what is Buddha? And um, Fayan said, you are Hui Chao. Or there's a when you look at different translations, every now and again you run a, run across a translation of this koan where somebody has inserted a comma between R and Hui, so it's you are Hui Chao. <laughs> um, but in some ways that's kind of beside the point. But but you could you can see where that's going, right? It's like one you might think. Um, the teacher is just turning the monk's question back around into a um, into a reference to a concrete reality, right? And in the other one, he's pointing, he's saying, Hui Chao, you're Buddha, right? Um, and it's possible to interpret those as different um, meanings of the case, but it's also possible to interpret them as just different lenses of looking at the same meaning, right? So, in some ways, the the you know the thing that this this case is pointing at is what's in English usually called um, uh, Buddha nature, in in, uh, in Chinese, it's something like Faoxing, uh, and in, in in Japanese, it's um, Busho, right? So, and there's it's a big topic, and there's been a lot of both development and debate about about the nature of Buddha nature and the history of. Buddhism. So I thought I'd go into a little bit of that because it's some of it's kind of interesting. Like if you if you look at the the sort of the Pali Canon and the 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 writings of the 
of the Theravadan Buddhists written generally, right? Um, only one guy gets to be the Buddha, right? <laughs> That's it. There's exactly one, and and or or a little bit more, um, uh, it, it, a little bit more complicated. There's one per major age of the world, one per kalpa. So if you so, even here. In the morning, we chant the um, the names of the Buddhas and ancestors, and um, the first seven names we chant are the mythical Buddhas from the previous ages of the world, right? And then there's, you know, the the one we, the at least semi-historical figure that we talk about, um, Shakyamuni, and then a, a bunch of um, essentially. Uh, a lineage of students down to, well, usually we only chant down to the third or so Japanese ancestor, but um, anyway. Um, so that's the, that's the, that's the Theravadan view. And, and even more specifically, if you read the, Pali canon kind of carefully, it, it seems to be saying that um, that the Buddha's, you know, Buddha nature wasn't fully realized until he died. In other words, until he extinguished his um, his you know karmic self um, and presumably became part of, of the, you know, some energetic continuum or something like that. Who knows, right? But in any case, the, 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 the final attainment of his Buddhahood happened at what's known as the Mahaparinirvana, which is the, his last entry into nirvana as he was dying, right? Um, and... It's very hard to know what um, what Buddhists originally thought because we don't really have any writings from the from the era of early Buddhism. But there's a um, the 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 Theravadins have this um, make this claim that they're kind of um, closer to the original ideas about Buddhism than than others, right? Than, than in fact the Mahayana schools, right? It, hard to know. But in any case, if you look at the at the ideas about Buddha nature in um, or what it gets translated as, as Buddha nature in English, um, in the early Mahayana schools, they have a very different flavor, right? So um, you know, I would say the 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 Theravadan scheme is that to be a Buddhist is to essentially withdraw from a sort of logistical and karmic and karmic perspective from the world and work on on um, purifying your karma and your and your actions perhaps over the course of multiple lifetimes until finally your um your your 
attachment to the karmic realm of, the, of suffering, samsara, is is um, is cut. And when you die, you're completely free. And the world, interestingly, is free of you as well, right? Um, for you know, for better or for worse, right? Um, the the underlying you know, kind of narrative in Mahayana Buddhism is was substantially different from that. And it's not it's hard to know what motivated this, but but the um the the ideal practitioner in the in the Mahayana world is the Bodhisattva. And a Bodhisattva hangs around and hangs around and works and works and works until everybody is ready to be free and then we all go together. Right? That's the that's kind of the um, that's the rubric or um, whatever, and and there's a it's can, it's almost on on the top of every time that that rubric is talked about the it's talked about it in a way that implies that actually that's going to take literally forever, right? In other words, it's not really gonna happen or it might happen somewhere in the infinite future right so it, it's more like here we are doing this thing and helping each other out forever right? and um, and the the ideas about Buddha nature are, are substantially different like the in the in the Mahayana scheme there are these two words that they use, uh, uh, Buddha Datu, which means sort of the, what could mean Buddha qualities or Buddha realm, right? And, and also Tathagata Garbha, which means the, um, the, the womb of the Buddha, sort of the Tathagata is another word for Buddha. It means that it also, it means the, one who is just this, right? So, and the the idea is that that everyone contains a Buddha, right? And and the the metaphors that they use to talk about how that containment looks are are, are really kind of weird and intriguing. There's a there's a list of them somewhere, and it includes like imagine. A, a golden statue of the Buddha, but it's still inside its sort of charred and slightly decaying clay mold, right? You know, that's that's the that's what that's what we're all like, right? We have this golden Buddha inside, but we're still the we're still the decaying, you know, like, you know, I don't know if you ever put a. Um, a, a mold with you know poured red you know white hot metal in it but they they look pretty you know like shabby after a few hundred pourings right um but but inside there's this beautiful thing right and all that has to happen is that mold has to break and uh and and there's the buddha right um but there's others there's some other um um, even like more colorful um, metaphors, like, well, what about a lump of gold inside a turd? 
<laughs> so they, it kind of goes on like that, right? Um, and um, so that was the, 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 that was the discourse in early Mahayana Buddhism around, um, uh, around the, well, around Buddha Dhatu and, and Tathagata Garba. And what happened was when Buddhism moved to China, they had to find translations for those terms. And the term, the translate, the term they most often used for those two words were um, uh, this word, uh, right? which essentially the, the fo is just the character Buddha, right? And Xing is a, is a character that means a bunch of stuff. It means gender, for one thing, which is kind of interesting. But it also means type. And it, and it has, it means any, anything that, that in English we would say ness or iti, right? It would be, it, they, would, they might use Xing there, right? So it's like Buddha-ness or Buddhity, Right. Um, uh, and and so and in the in the kind of ferment that um, that happened when Buddhism came to came to China and all these texts were translated and people started writing um, writing texts that were sort of com either commentaries on or or um, you know sort of um, native Chinese texts they wrote um, they started writing well there's a famous text called um, uh, you know faith in Mahayana basically um, that 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 expounds this doctrine of, of Buddha nature. And in the end, it, it landed in the uh, Tiantai school, which is the, the, one of the first and largest, you know, like large Buddhist schools in China. And they developed a doctrine of, of, of Buddha nature, of uh, Foxing, uh, that was... Um, that was based on this really interesting notion of original enlightenment, you know, and it's, it's translated as usually as original enlightenment. And I'm pretty sure it's translated that way by um, Western translators just to contrast it with the Christian notion of original sin, right? So um, the, the, um, in Chinese, it's I think something like ben Zhui, and in um, uh, in Japanese, it's Hongaku, right? Um, and the the idea of original enlightenment is that we're all, you know, just as the name implies, we're all basically enlightened beings, um, and we have. The, and the only problem with it, is, with it is we don't know it. And in the in the in the Mahayana version of the of the story of the life of Buddha, what the Buddha said when he woke up, he looks up, he sees the morning star. He's like, 
whoa. <laughs> I see how it is. Um, everybody's awake. Everybody has the has the the mind of awakening. You know, ever present in their in their body, right? But because of their preoccupations, they don't see it. That, that's the um, that's kind of the you know uh, hongaku in a in a um, in a in a couple of sentences, or maybe it's just one sentence, right? Um, if you, I guess it's two sentences if you include the woe, right? Um, so, that idea continued to develop and and one of the one of the aspects of it, of its development um in the in the Tiantai school which which in Japanese is Tendai right is that um it became it well at least according to some scholars it became a disincentive to practice right because if we're all originally enlightened it doesn't make any difference if we practice or not right um and and you know Dogen was essentially edu- you know Dogen, does anybody know who Dogen is he's probably been mentioned and I've been here that okay this temple is a is is a is known as a Soto Zen temple. Um, which, that's one of the major Zen Buddhist schools, and and the the guy that brought Soto Zen to Japan um, from China was this guy named Dogen, who was um, he was. A ward of the imperial court because he was the son of a high-ranking relative of the emperor and a and a kind of important concubine, right? And so he was taken care of at the, at the court, but he wasn't really didn't really have a home there, right? But he was highly educated, really smart ridiculously arrogant and and uh and like entitled right and um and and yet when his mom died um when he was about 12 they did what people normally do with the with you know men in or young men in in Dogen's position they sent him off to a monastery and in particular they sent him off to a Tendai monastery right and um, and so Dogen was there. He lived at the Tendai Monastery till he was about 19, and he was just a real pain in everyone's ass, right? And and he was constantly asking about, according to um, uh, according to early stories about his um, you know his preoccupations, right? And there are a few accounts of his early life. Um, he was constantly asking about exactly this question, right? Like if if the all the texts, the all the sutras that we're reading here say that that we all are originally enlightened, right? And 
And what, then why do all the Buddhas that we have a record of, you know, and, and all of the, all of the important, um, uh, all the important ancestors, the people that brought Buddhism down from the, th you know, through, um, you know, North India, up into um, China and Central Asia, and then eventually um, to Japan. Why did all those important Buddhists practice diligently and in ways that are depicted as pretty extreme? Like the the, the guy that brought um, Buddhism, the, this particular strain of Buddhism to China is this semi-mythical character named Bodhidharma. And he was sitting meditating in the snow, you know, in, in a cave and on a snowy winter night. And his first student shows up, this guy named Huike. And uh, he stands outside the, um, the cave and says, please teach me. And Bodhidharma says, no. He goes, no, go away. Right. And uh, so Huike stands there all night in the snow, and, and finally he says, I know what I'll do. And he gets a big knife, and he cuts off his arm, and he gives it to Bodhidharma, and he says, okay, now will you teach me? And, and Bodhidharma's like, okay, fine. <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 he, and, Huike, and Bodhidharma says, what do you want to know? And Huike says, well, my mind is not at peace. And, um, and Bodhidharma says, okay, fine. Bring me your mind, and I'll pacify it for you. And then, and and uh, and so, Huike goes off. You know, bandages up his arm and sits in a corner and stares at the wall. And after after a while, Lord only knows how long, he gets up and he goes, "I I, I can't find my mind." And Bodhidharma says, "See, I've pacified it for you." And th and that's <laughs> that's like. Um, that's kind of what it was like back in the day, right? So they were all practicing pretty hard. <laughs> and, and, and so Dogen says, why were they doing this if they were all originally enlightened? And nobody can answer his question. And besides which, everyone thought he was, you know, kind of a jerk. And so they, they, they his teacher, and, you know, I think he was a pretty diligent student, actually. But his teacher um, one day came to him and said, you know... There's this Rinzai Zen guy that just landed here. He's he's Japanese, but he studied in China, and and uh, and I think you should go study with him. So he goes and um, goes to study with this guy. His name was Asai, I think. And at right about when he was about to move into his place, Asai died. But he had a successor named Myozen who. After a little while with Dogen, um, said, you know what we should do? We should go to China. So they got on a boat and they went to China. And Dogen knocked around. And Asai, I mean, sorry, Myozen actually died while Dogen was in China. So he was, all, and he was on his own. And he finally stumbled into this place um, called Tiantong and met the, this teacher, whose name was also Tiantong, and was kind of woken up by his encounters with that teacher and went back to um, Japan after about five years or so, all full of, you know, vim and vigor and, and you know, zen and tried to convince everyone to, um, to become Zen Buddhists and they all essentially ran him out of town on a rail. And, and uh, 
that's um, that's the story of Dogen. <laughs> um, so he was raised in a Tendai monastery, and he was constantly pestering people with this question, and they really couldn't answer it for him, right? Uh, but eventually, I mean, in, in addition to um, really bringing Soto Zen to Japan and re establishing this incredibly beautiful monastery in what now Fukui Prefecture that that um, looks like just somebody took a mountain and kind of stacked a few pieces of it on top of some other pieces and and took some incredibly gigantic trees and made pillars out of them and and it's been there since the 13th century and it looks pretty good right um, but anyway um, he wrote a ton of stuff, and he wrote a, an essay called Bouchot, which is exactly about the question of Buddha nature, right? And in it, he sort of answers his own question, right? And, and his idea of Buddha nature that, that shows up in this document to kind of sum it up is that um, first of all he, all all beings it's you, it's it's hard to figure out whether to use the word have or are but I'll use the word are all all beings are inherently Buddha nature right and he he makes a huge point of subject-object non-duality. So not only are all sentient beings Buddha nature, but even the um, even the, you know, the rocks and trees, and he says planets and stars and stuff like that, um, are are also participants in in Buddha nature. Right. So everything, the whole phenomenal world is itself the Buddha, right? The body of Buddha, the mind of Buddha. And to answer his own question about, um, about why practice, you don't realize that unless you practice. That's what it comes down to. Otherwise, otherwise, like the Buddha said in the story I was telling earlier, you're just you're you're mired in your preoccupations and only occasionally get a little glimpse of of that other mode of of, of engagement or reality, right? Um, and. Nice. And so he, so having answered this question for himself, he um, eventually went on to write this incredibly, almost illegible document called Bouchot that, that I'm in, sort of in the middle of reading now. But he originally wrote a, manif a couple of manifestos, one of which is the Fukanza Zengi that we chant here a lot the title of which means 
everybody should be sitting zazen, right? And entity says um, that zazen isn't about learning anything, right? It's about it's about practicing your Buddha nature, right? And he says it's the Dharma gate of of ease and joy, right? That. Um, and maybe you don't even know that you're practicing your Buddha nature when you start out, but but eventually it dawns on you that that's what you're doing, right? Um, and that and it becomes the Dharma gate of ease and joy. Um, and so that's what we're all doing, basically. Um, we're all bringing ourselves close to our that our supposed interface with the phenomenal world and standing so close that that interface actually disappears, right? And it's just the phenomenal world. Um, how often does that happen? Well, often enough. But um, it becomes more possible if you have a regular sitting practice that has a certain quality of unloaded, diligent effort, right? Mm. So, before we move on, does anybody have any questions about all that? Comments? Complaints? Go ahead. Yeah, that's it's a it's a great question. Actually, I think I devoted a yes talk to that to that about six months ago. But um, I'm pretty sure that what Dogen meant, and in my experience, what what occurs to me is the meaning of that is that when you know. When the that the mode of self preoccupation softens up a little bit, and this other way of experiencing the world that's more spacious, less concerned with grasping aversion, agenda executing, and all the rest of that sort of thing, sort of floats into view, right? Um, you get the opportunity to experience it directly, right? Um, and my experience of it is that it has a kind of subtle emotional baseline. And that subtle emotional baseline is, is a kind of ease or appreciation that's totally unconditioned. It, has, it doesn't depend on anything, right? And, um, and when, but when you're relaxed and settled, it, 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 ha it has this quality of ease and, and unconditioned appreciation. When there's something exciting going on, it has the quality of delight, basically. Um, so that, that's what it means. Does that make sense? Or, um, it's, just, it's just the emotional baseline to the extent that, you know, you know, well, it's a, in, in a subtle way, it really is an emotional baseline of of that other mode of that other experiential mode that rises up from sitting to take place and take its place alongside your usual mode of engagement 
right? And the, often, like Suzuki Roshi famously in Zen Mind Beginners Mind calls them big mind and small mind, right? Or big mind and everyday mind, right? Um, other other people call them different things. The our Soto ancestor Dongshan called them the upright and the leaning, or the crooked and the straight, basically. Um, they're, they're just these two kind of major modes of being that we carry on our bodies, basically. And, and one of them has the, has the, emotion, the usual emotional content, right? Um, the, the, the emotions that we construct socially and that we experience you know, hopefully on a daily basis, right? And then the other one has this kind of more subtle play of emotion, basically. Yeah. Go ahead. No, my experience is that it just sneaks up on you. Basically, <laughs> you know, you you do this enough, and then you're like, oh wow, look at that, right? There's this kind of um, ease and joy that arises associated with the experience of being broadly present and um, and engaged in this kind of unloaded, spacious manner. You, you you wouldn't necessarily think that, right? You might think uh, you wouldn't feel any emotion at all or something like that. But it turns out it's not true, actually. Right? Um, does that make sense? Or, yeah. And and you know, I'm not. It's a, and I'm not the only one that thinks so. Clearly, Dogen thinks because he said that, right? But um, but anyway. You better believe it can. <laughs> there, you know, like the um, Dongshan, who named the, these two modes, the crooked and the straight, or the um, leaning and the upright, right? Um, it, he, he wrote this poem, right, um, that's about the relationship between those two modes of being, right? And it's called the five ranks of the crooked and the straight. Um, and in the first one, he says... Basically, um, the first time you ever experienced this, you're probably in some monastery staring at a wall, and it's late at night, and and uh, and no wonder you're confused about it, <laughs> right? And uh, and Hakuin wrote a commentary on that that basically said, you can't help yourself but to set up a scenario where you think, I just need to be doing this this, you know, like, thing that I'm doing in order to make this happen, right? And and so, yes, you do get attached to it. It's possible, right? Because because that's the way we're built, right? And so the, um, you know, so I'll tell you, tell you a story. Years ago, I did, I did um, the, um, you know, winter Sashin 
or the actually Rohatsu Sushin, so end of year Sushin on successive years at Tassahara. And the first one I had this, I would say, kind of wild time and also very sort of deep experience of this stuff that we're talking about, right? And the next one, I was there and it was beautiful and I was, you know, enjoying my life and all the rest of that sort of thing. But about midway through, I was like, something is missing. <laughs> and it's just because I wasn't having the same experience. You know, even a year, I would, a year apart, I was still dreaming about that, um, that previous experience, right? So it's something to be careful with, yeah, I would say. Because, you know, again, that's how we're built. We, we experience something, we set it up, and we think, that was really living. And then look out, basically. Yeah. Go ahead. Yes. And um, when you said that, I thought that the mind is what realizes the Buddha nature. And, or in my experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. right. And so I was wondering if you consider the mind to be one of the senses, if you consider the realization to happen through the mind, or if it's as a whole. Because when we were doing. Mm -hmm. And I, I struggled with that. I was going, you know, around through all my different senses. And I realized I was craving to have more like, I, I wanted, I was imposing myself to have a whole some experience kind of like, oh, I want to perceive everything as a whole and mm -hmm. just focus on one thing. Yeah. I don't know where I'm going with all of these. I guess yeah. <laughs> my reflection is around the mind intellectual realization of that Buddha nature instead of like maybe perceiving it as a whole. Yeah. Your heart, your feet, I don't know. Yeah, no, I, so I, yeah, I get that. I mean, so you have this, you have these, again, you, I mean, there's more than two modes, but the ones that, that Dongshan talked about and the one that, the ones that we're talking about are these sort of major modes of engagement, right? Um, they are entangled inextricably, right? Um, the, the experience that arises in one lands in the other and is, and the, the, the intentions and actions that are kicked off by the other um, affect the experience of, 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 this, the, of the first, right? It's there and literally all of our significant practice happens in the tangle in between those two modes. It's, it's, the, it's the tangle between the, our, our everyday cognition, our, our you know, categorizing, intellectualizing, conceptualizing self, and this, this other mode that really doesn't do a lot with concepts and categories, right? And, and in which concepts and categories are fundamentally empty, right? Um, and, and our experience takes place in that, in that tangle, and I think in some ways the best we can the best we can do is, if you, with a certain amount of practice and 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 
some experiential examples to go on, you can learn to allow the attention to move smoothly between those modes as necessary. You can't, you can't go to the grocery store and buy half a dozen eggs and a um, uh, and and a head of broccoli um, while you're completely. without your your um, your mode of everyday cognition. You can't do it, right? Um, so we, we need that one. And then the other one, we also need, although we don't really realize we need it until it starts showing up, right? But what the, from a, as a, as a practical matter, the, the practice of be, staying close to that other mode, Cast a light on the activity of the self of the of of our everyday mind that is tremendously useful, right? Um, that's that's one that's the practical application. The the totally impractical application is that the experience that arises in that other mode is is completely goes beyond cog concept or cognition, right? Um, and sometimes it shows up in your body, amazing, right? And takes over, which is um, remarkable, right? Um, does that answer your question? Yeah. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, and and what happens is that you get better at f f enacting the the em the embodied the subtle embodied effort of settling where you are and allowing. Um, that mode to take its place in your awareness, basically. That's that's the that's the practice, and that's why Dogen says, in in Bouchot, he says it's all dependent on it, on practice. You're actually the, the, being awake is is a continuous practice, right? Because you're constantly having to enact this um, this sort of yeah this sort of Embodied um, step, backward step, right? That that allows you to um, to cast a, a a light on the activity of self, which is to say the activity of the whole world, right? As it presents itself from this particular point of view, right? Does that answer your question, or, or? Yeah, okay? Thank you. Okay, so 